what we're going to do this evening is to attempt an exercise in learning Torah as a puzzle. Um, that's what I get to do a fair amount uh, in yeshiva itself. That's that's really my my main my main exercise. Whether it's teaching chumash or gemara or halacha, uh, I try to present the Torah as a as a puzzle that we're trying to put together. And I guess before we really enter, and this is a great exercise and a great example of uh, of this methodology of teaching, which may be somewhat unfamiliar. Normally, you know, a standard uh, shear. Is um, is something where someone asks a question and they give an answer. And um, instead, I would invite our audience here and those who are watching the recording afterwards to think of the exercise of Torah study as an encounter with these various puzzle pieces that are the different sources that are on the source sheet, and an attempt to reconfigure them back together. Now, the truth is that I put these sources on the source sheet, but on a certain level and a certain register of studying Torah. There's a way of uh, looking at Torah texts where it doesn't really matter what's on the source sheet. Everything fits together. Um, everything can fit together. And uh, there's a there's a, a tale which I guess I'll start with as a, as a good opening. Um, they say that the fa- the father of the Muslim movement, the founder of the Muslim movement, Bistral Salanter, used to go from yeshiva to yeshiva, and he would give a sheer klali. He would give a sort of general uh, class on some major topic in, in the Talmud, whatever the particular Masechta um, tractate that the yeshiva was studying, he would he would give like a, you know, a, a blowout sheer kind of covering all of the various topics that they were studying. And he would usually send uh, a list of sources for the students to prepare before he arrived at the yeshiva. And uh, there was one particular yeshiva that maybe I guess needed some uh, studying of Musr more than, than others based on the story, but Two of the fellows in the in the yeshiva decided to pull a prank on Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Uh, they said, "We don't want you know this this uh, you know the self help stuff, this Musr stuff, which is really a, a form of Torah study that's aimed very in a very direct and sometimes uh, not even very deep, just a very direct and blunt uh, attempt at at correcting character flaws uh, and behavior." And um, Rabbi Yisrael sent ahead the, the Makoros, the, uh, the sources for the students to study ahead of time. And when the students, when these two students got their hands on the sources before, I guess, anybody else came into the base medish, they quickly jotted down on a piece of paper a whole different host of different sources, you know, a list of, uh, of, of entirely different sources and hung it up on the bulletin board for everybody to study. And uh, the day, days leading up to Rabbi Yisrael uh, visit, the students started preparing these sources and having a lot of difficulty trying to figure out what in the world uh, these sources have to do with each other, these disparate sources throughout the, the entire Talmud. When Yisrael Slanter came, he walked into the classroom or into the, uh, into the study hall and uh, took one look at the, at the source sheet that was in front of him and realized that something was, uh, was decidedly off. And uh, he composed himself and sat, sort of sat there looking at the crowd and looking back at the source sheet and, you know, about five minutes elapsed uh, of this somewhat uh, strained silence. And then Rizal Slanter just began speaking and he took uh, source number one and source number two and source number three and source number four. And he carefully and, and like a master surgeon wove uh, all these pieces together in a way that he gave this brilliant sheer. And afterwards he's, he, you know, he presented the reason why he had really come, which is what he used to do all the time. He would present his, his discourse, his lecture. And at the end, he would say, you know, it's really important to, to study Musr and we should include, you know, we should increase the uh, the starim 
the various times that are allotted for the study of Musar and uh, said thank you and was ready to go on his way. These two students who had pulled the prank came running over to him, realizing that they'd made a terrible error about the, the level of stature of, of scholarship of this great rabbi. And they begged his forgiveness. They said, please forgive us. We're so sorry for trying to pull this prank on you. You know, we didn't, we didn't realize how important this is. We're going to dedicate ourselves to the study of Musar. And please forgive us for this, uh, for this terrible crime of trying to embarrass you in public. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, uh, and, and they said, they said, we don't know how you did it. You pulled off giving this remarkable share after just five minutes of studying the sources. And you were able to somehow in those five minutes put it all together. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter looked at them and he said, he said, I forgive you, but you should just know that the five minutes that I spent up there were not trying to put the sources together. The five minutes that I stood up there was trying to have an inner dialogue with myself, an inner battle with myself to try to figure out whether or not I was giving the shear just to show you that I could do it. Meaning, was this just my own ego trip to try to show you that even though you tried to fool me, I, I knew something had happened and I was struggling. Was, am I trying to make a point here? Or am I trying to really do what I came here to do, which was to share the importance of studying Musar? And in order to do that, I needed to give a shear in order to... And after five minutes of wrestling with myself, which is what a master Baal Musar does, what a person who's really working on their inner character does, after five minutes, I simply looked at the sources and was able to put everything together because the truth is, and this is what he said, that somebody who knows how to sail the sea of the Talmud, that was the language that he used, someone who knows how to sail the sea of the Talmud, it doesn't really matter very much what sources are there, because everything is all connected to each other. And so what we'll try to do in this uh, short session that we have together uh, over the next uh, 40 minutes or so is to attempt to put together some of these puzzle pieces in a way that obviously I, I had the luxury of hand-selecting the pieces. But as I think you'll, you'll agree, um, the sources don't necessarily on the surface have anything to do with each other. And we're going to do an exercise in uh, what in mathematics is called the transitive property. That in math, you know, there's a, a basic rule, uh, which is used in calculus and other higher forms of math, that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And so one of the ways of studying Torah is to simply make a string of several different ideas. And if A equals B and then B equals C, even though A and C don't seem to have anything to do with one another, we might have to force ourselves to try to figure out what the connection is between A and C because all of a sudden we've seen that these two puzzle pieces fit together and these two puzzle pieces fit together. Then obviously there's some continuum that leads puzzle piece A to puzzle piece C. And really the, the lodestar for me, I would say the lodestar source that, uh, that taught me this, in addition to obviously great teachers who, who taught me this way of, of Torah study, um, the lodestar for me is really a, the first source on the page, the Gemara in Mesechet Rosh Hashanah. And I hope that you can all see uh, along with me. If anybody's interested in the source sheet, feel free to reach out to whoever got you to this shear in the first place, and I will make sure that you get the source sheet. So the Gemara says, Tani b'shem Rabbi Nechemya, haisa ka'aniot socher. Everybody knows this Pasuk from, uh, from Eshet Chayil, right? That the, one of the praises of the woman of valor, which really is at the same time that it is a love song to our to our wives or to our mothers or to our daughters, to the woman of valor of the Jewish, the Jewish woman. It is also a love song to the Torah HaKadosha, to the Torah herself. And one of the praises of the Torah is socher. She is like a merchant ship. From far away, she brings her bread. Now, this is a, a simple to understand parable that in the same way that in uh, good business, if you have a supply 
and it is in high demand in one place, and it is in high supply in another place, well, then if you take the thing which is in high supply from one place and you put it on a ship and you bring it to the place where it is in low supply but in high demand, then you're going to get yourself uh, a pretty penny for being able to supply this thing which is in high demand. So the Torah is interesting. The Torah is compared to a merchant ship that is mimerchak tavilachma, that from far away she brings her bread. Meaning to say, says the Gemara, divrei Torah are aniyim bimkomon va'ashirim Amazing statement. That words of Torah are poor in their place, and they are wealthy, they are rich, b'makom acher, elsewhere. I guess what that might mean is that sometimes you'll have a statement from the uh, Chumash, from the, from the Bible, or from, uh, from Nevi'im, or from the Gemara, or from the Midrash, or from Halacha, and on the surface, this statement is, uh, is a standalone statement that, on the surface, I don't know why this is here. What, the Torah is supposed to be this exalted, transcendent wisdom, and uh, I don't know, this particular line in the Talmud or this particular line in the Chumash is not really speaking to me. It's not really saying anything so profound that I can, I can really appreciate its depth, its profundity, and ultimately its value. So in the same way that, you know, you could have a person who lives in a place where there's abundant uh, bananas, and uh, there's bananas on every street corner, every, every, every street corner has a banana tree. And that's not going to be particularly uh, helpful for selling bananas. You got to take the bananas to a place where there's no bananas. And if you take the bananas to a place where there's no bananas, so then all of a sudden those bananas are worth a lot. And so sometimes when we're studying Torah, we come across one idea, one puzzle piece, which on the surface, maybe we're not sure exactly quite what to do with that. Divrei Torah says the Gemara in the Yushalmi, Aniyam bimkoman v'ashir they're poor in their place. But if you then take that idea, and you connect it to something else, you connect it to another piece of Torah, which is found elsewhere, then all of a sudden, that Torah, which is found elsewhere, connects with the Torah, which was poor in its place. And the two of those two, those two things together, all of a sudden, create some chemical effect, some Torah, Torah chemistry that brings out a very, powerful, uh, a very powerful medicine. Now, the reason why I use the word medicine, and I'll just give one more uh, methodological point, one more point about the way that we're going to study this. And then after that, I, uh, I'll jump right into the to the... Hanukkah idea itself. And this is an idea which perhaps another lodestar teaching that helps us to appreciate this methodology of Torah study is none other than the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Rabbi Nachman himself um, was a master of being able to put together sources in this way, which is It's certainly one of the uh, one of the great uh, things that you find in Rabbi Nachman Sefer that sets him apart from other thinkers. And in Rabbi Nachman Sefer himself, he speaks about this idea in one of his teachings in Torah Nun Zayin, where he says, Kol har, this is in source number two, Kol heim harkavos. Medicine, you know, um, I don't know, you know, it's hard for me to see. I see some of the names who are here, but I, I, I certainly don't know everybody who's here. Um, I, I know some of you, but but some of you certainly don't don't know me and and I don't really know you well. Um, I look forward to, to meeting you. But uh, a number of years ago, I've been, I've been in Oraita Baruch Hashem for about 10 years. And uh, several of those years, two of those years, in, intermittently, um, I was in the United States getting treatment for T-cell lymphoma, which is a pretty serious diagnosis. And before I started treatment, I actually went to a Chinese medicine man in uh, what is affectionately referred to as Chinatown in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, he, he asked me to put out my, my wrist and he took my pulse 
and he asked me to stick out my tongue and I stuck out my tongue. And then he took out a piece of paper and he, that was it. That was the whole exam. And then he asked me a few questions and then um, he, he took out a piece of paper and he started writing down, uh, he started writing down uh, different herbs on a piece of paper. And he said, take this to the fellow who's in the front by the desk. And in the front, there was this big wall, kind of like a big wall of Svarim, except it had like little drawers and a ladder that would like a, a, like a library ladder that could like move along the thing. And this guy was just jumping up and down the ladder, running up and down the ladder, grabbing little things from this drawer and that drawer and throwing them into a bag together. And then the, the medicine man came at himself and he made this big mixture of teas of different herbs that he told me to drink at uh, X or Y inter intervals. And, um, and this is what Rabbi Nachman says, says, medicine, uh, even nowadays, even more advanced pharmaceuticals, you know, um, in more classical Western medicine is, you know, you can look at the bottle of any type of medicine. You'll see the active ingredients and the inactive ingredients. Medicine is basically a mixture of various different uh, chemicals, synthetic or herbs. And um, basically what you do is you take some herb and you, you weigh it or measure it at a certain uh, volume. And then you take a few of these different herbs. You mix them all together. When you do that, you make a medicine which helpfully will heal the person from their stomachache or their headache or whatever illness they have. This will help a person who is sick to become healed. And therefore, that's why you need a, a good doctor. You need a good pharmacist who knows which compounds, which medicines, which herbs go well together and which herbs do not go well together. That when you know how to put the right things together, you can effectively heal the person without negative side effects and with the maximum amount of healing. But a person who is not an expert doctor, who doesn't know how to put the, uh, an expert pharmacist, who doesn't know how to put the things together. Even if you take certain herbs that have a healing power, they're not going to work in the right way. Because if you take one compound that's like this and another compound like this, and they cancel each other out or you didn't put the right amount, it could have negative side effects. It could have neg it could not uh, have the, the positive effect that you intended because it's not in the right measurement. And says Rabbi Nachman amazingly that the same thing is true of Torah study, that a person needs a master teacher. And I'm not speaking about myself here, but I'm speaking about our teachers, our great teachers throughout, throughout history. The, the great teachers of the Jewish people throughout history who've known the secret of taking a pasuk here and a medrash here and a, a small statement of the Talmud here and a, a, another statement from the, from the Shulchan Aruch and to mix all of that together, <clears throat> excuse me, to mix all that together in a way where you make a proper harkava, a proper medicine. And that's really what Torah is. Torah is supposed to be medicine. And the only way that the Torah can, can heal us in the way that it's supposed to, the only way that we can make sure that the Torah is properly giving us the medicine that we need is by making sure that the right measurements are put together in the right way. So let's try and let's try an, an exercise in uh, in experimenting with this uh, methodology of Torah study, where we're taking different puzzle pieces or different compound medicines and putting them together in a way which is absolutely remarkable. And hopefully, the ultimate goal of Torah study is not just to uh, heal ourselves up here to give ourselves some interesting food for thought to think about, but really that it should go from here down into here. It should go into our hearts and it should change us and to make us into uh, better practitioners of life which is the goal of, of Torah study. Torah is called Torah Chaim. It's called the Torah of life. And it's supposed to make us better, more effective livers in the world. Um, so, so let's jump right in. And again, like I said, I'm going to try to move fast. And uh, I spent about 10 minutes on the introduction. So that leaves us with about a, a half hour remaining. Okay, so in source number three, we have the beginning of our uh, puzzle piece. You see that the, um, 
the title of this class is Hanukkah. So obviously, we're going to talk about Hanukkah. Grease, as in not the uh, stuff that is on the bottom of your pot after you've made uh, chicken soup. Grease, the Yavan, the nation. Copper thighs, which I guess is really two things. Copper, as in the uh, the alloy metal known as copper. Thighs, as in uh, what I am sitting on right now, you know, my thighs. Um, and the secret of bowing. So we're going to see if we can try to string some of these things together. But in order to begin, we need to start with a little bit of a, a little bit of a mystery. There is a Gemara, uh, excuse me, there is a, a Pasuk, uh, a story even, in Sefer Daniel that refers to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a terrible nightmare. You know what? I'm going to stop share here for a second just so that I can see more of your faces and we can, we can see each other for a minute to tell the story. Nebuchadnezzar has a terrible... Ben Schiff, no way. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this terrible nightmare. And um, in his nightmare, he sees this mifletzet, this monster. And the monster is made up of different things. The head of the monster and the arms and the torso of the monster are made of something else. And the hips and the thighs, although going down to the knees, is made up of a third material. And then the the ankles and the you know the lower leg and the feet are made up of a fourth and fifth material, a mixture of these two materials together. And um, and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and wakes up in a cold sweat in a panic, and calls all of his advisors and says, "All right, everybody here has I don't, the pasuk says I don't remember offhand. It says everyone here has twenty four hours or something like that to I don't remember the dream. I just know that it was terrifying." And you have 24 hours to come up with what the dream was and what the interpretation is because we got to do something about this. And all the advisors say, listen, you know, your highness, we, we've heard of in the past kings demanding that uh, dream interpretation. You know, there's a rich history of kings demanding of their advisors dream interpretation. We've never heard in the history of, of kings that somebody uh, demanded that we should somehow figure out what the dream was. You, I don't know if you know how this works, your highness, but really the way it works is you tell us the dream and we tell you the interpretation, right? So he says... He says, you know, you guys are just trying to stall off with all your heads. And he calls in the Jewish advisors and he says, no, what about you guys? Can you? And Daniel and his friends are, you know, terrified. He's going to kill them too. And Daniel says, listen, I'm not trying to, I am, I am trying to stall, but I'm not trying to stall because I don't have an answer for you. Give me, uh, give me three days. And if I don't have it in three days, you could kill us all. But give me three days. I need to go and to pray to God that he'll reveal to me the, the dream and its interpretation. So lo and behold, Chapter two of Daniel, Daniel prays for salvation, that Hashem should reveal to him the secret of this dream. And he's told of the dreams. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him the nature of the dream and its interpretation. And this is what he says. He says, the dream that you saw, the, the, the dream that you had, what you saw in your dream was the following. Source number three. Who Selma Reisha Didahav? What you saw is a tselem, an image. Reisha Didahav Tav. It's Reisha. It's it, Daniel's uh, famously difficult because it's an Aramaic, because um, most of it is him him speaking to the Chaldeans who are uh, who are imprisoning him. But Reisha did the havtav. Its head is made out of most pure gold. That's the top. Chadohi udrohi. Its chest and its arms are made out of de kesef. They're made out of silver. Mohi vier kasei. Its uh, its hips. And its thighs going all the way down to the knee. Dinachash, that is made out of copper, right? Nechoshet, 
which is the uh, the Hebrew word for nechoshet, and the feet, which I guess is the next pasuk I didn't put here in the source sheet. Its feet are made out of uh, a mixture of bronze and stone, of clay. And you saw this whole uh, image of this terrifying beast. And he, he continues on with the dream. But what he basically tells him is, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. The Babylonian king, the Babylonian exile, you are the, you are the head of gold. And the arms of silver and the chest of silver, that is the exile of the Jewish people known as Paras Umadai, the Persian Median exile. And that's coming up soon. And you're going to lose your kingdom to these. And that's why you were terrified. Because you're going to lose your kingdom to the Persian Medes. And then after that, you should know that they're not going to last forever either. There's going to be a third exile. And that's going to be the uh, the Yavanim, the Greeks. And the Greeks, they are symbolized by the copper thighs of this uh, beast. And then the final exile is going to be Gullus Rome or Gullus Edom uh, and, and Yishmal as well. And that's why... The, there's a two mixture of, of two different materials because it's going to be Rome and Yishmael, the son of Avram and the son of Yitzchak together, right? The son of Avram being Yishmael and the son of Yitzchak being Esav. The two of them are going to tag team and it's going to be a long exile for the Jewish people. And that is the terrifying dream that you saw. Now, I just want to pluck out one thing from here. And that is that we see at least from the, this is the, the first place and this will start to become three-dimensional in a moment. The puzzle piece that I'd like to introduce you here to is that somehow the Greek exile is being symbolized in this terrifying monster, not as a head, not as arms, not as the chest, and not as the lower legs or feet, but specifically as the hips and the thighs, and they are not gold, and they are not silver, and they are not metal or, uh, or stone, clay. Rather, they are copper. They are copper thighs. And if you are a careful student of the Torah, then you want to know why. Why is, what is the connection between Yavon and copper thighs? And that's really going to be our uh, big fish that we're trying to capture here. And hopefully by the end, we will be able to explain and unravel this riddle. Because I love riddles. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to have this, this riddle of uh, how do we understand these copper thighs? I take your attention now to source number four, to another story. This is a great one. I'm going to stop the share again so that I can see some of you and share the story. Um, Here's the story. It's a story from Sefer Yechezkel. I, I majored in Tanakh, so I have a little bit of an advantage that I, I got to study some of these stories in university. And I thank my parents who are in the background over there having a family gathering, but they, they're such good fans, such great fans. They, that's my father right over there, just walked into the screen, now walking away. And, um, you know, they paid for my university uh, education and I got to study Tanakh, which is pretty cool. And um, I'm grateful to them for that. Anyway, so in Sefer Yechezkel, uh, there's a remarkable story. And that is the following. It's not such a subtle muscle. Okay, Yechezkel, now, like many of the prophets of the Jewish people, the prophets of the Jewish people were not only prophets to uh, the Jews, but they were prophets to the non-Jews as well. And uh, Yechezkel is given a prophecy to go speak to the people of Tzor. Uh, Tzor is the city that is known as T-Y-R-E, Tyre, Tzor. And it is a port city uh, near Damascus, part of Damascus. Um, and, uh, and here's the not-so-subtle mushal, which Yechezkel is told to go tell the people of Tzor. This is what he's told. He's told. He says, go tell the people of Tzor that once upon a time, there was a boat. And the boat's name was not the Nina, the Pinta, or the Santa Maria. The boat's name was Tzor. 
Now, if you're going to a port city named Tsur and you're telling them about a boat named Tsur, so your ears are probably going to perk up because he's probably talking about you. And here's the mushroom. The mushroom is as follows. This boat called Tsur is the uh, ancient version of Amazon.com. What is the boat city? What is this boat called Tsur that somehow represents the, the port city of Tsur? Well, Tsur being a port city would have all of the nations in the surrounding area come and deliver their goods to the Amazon warehouse known as Tsur. And Tsur would then, as a port city, send it out to all the different places. You know, we were talking before about Haisa Ka'anil Socher. Well, Tsur was this port city that had this uh, ability to trans transport, you know, I don't know, the Swiss watches and the German cars and the, or maybe people like chocolate from Switzerland better, you know, and the Intel chips from China and all the different things. Every country has its, you know, its Indian. And, um, and, and Sur was this port city that would trans, trans, uh, transport everything to the proper places. Now, Yechezkel is told to go tell the people of Tzor, once upon a time, there was a boat named Tzor, and it was in the middle of the Lev Hayam, it was in the middle of the ocean. And something uh, terrible happened. You know what happened? Well, uh, this nation came and they loaded it up with, uh, with this goods, and, and this nation came and loaded it up with the different goods, and this one loaded it up with a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh, you know, and all these different nations came and loaded up their uh, their national pride goods. And the ship got so heavy that it sunk. End of Moshal. Yechezkel then turns to the people of Tzor and says to them, Hevra, if you don't do tshuva, if you don't stop becoming so obsessed with, uh, with conspicuous consumption, with, you know, eat, live, and be merry because tomorrow we'll die, and everything is just about having and having and having, your, your boat's going to sink. You're, you're, you're not paying any attention to the being of life and you're only paying attention to the having of life. You're not paying attention to the people around you and to the quality of the moral fiber of your, of your character. And you're only paying attention to the, to the you know, stuffing your pockets with more and more stuff. And it's going to lead to your ruin if you don't, if you don't turn the ship around, if you don't uh, let off some of, the, uh, some of the physicality. So if you look there, you have an amazing window into all the different nations of the world and their national uh, character. You have an amazing window into what are the special goods and services of every nation. And wouldn't you know it, in source number four, Yavon, right, who is uh, Greek, that's the Greek who are uh, represented by the copper thighs. They are Hema Rochlaich Benefesh Adam Their national medal, what they uh, pedal in, they pedal the where's their Rochlaich, which means their merchants. They are merchants in, and what they pedal in is they pedal in clay nechoshes. That is not only, so now we understand, we answered our first question sort of. Why is it that copper is a good material to represent the Greeks by? Well, that happens to be their national uh, metal, that they have a rich supply. Like you might want to say that if you were trying to make a mushal about Saudi Arabia, you might use the, the parable of oil in some way, just like the boat is used for tzor. Well, nechoshes is a really good parable for Yavan because that is their primary uh, goods that they that they uh, transport around the world. Okay, so that's uh, another check on our box of this idea that Yavan is somehow connected to copper. Let's go for one more. There is a Navua in Zechariah, in Perak Vav of Zechariah. Zechariah is also a very difficult sefer. Stop share again. Zechariah is a very difficult sefer because uh, it's the end of prophecy. The Ibn Ezra in his Haktama to Zechariah points out that because this is the end of the prophetic uh, tekufa, it's the end of the prophetic period, 
So uh, you know how it is like when the water's, you know, when you're starting to run out of water in the hot urn on Shabbos, you know, and it's like starting to drip a little bit. It's not so strong current. So Zechariah's Nevoa is not, uh, is not super, you know, not super strong. And that's evidenced by the fact that it's a very difficult safer. Because if Nevoa is very strong, like Moshe Rabbeinu's Nevoa is very strong. What happens with Moshe Rabbeinu's Nevoa? Moshe Rabbeinu's Nevoa is something like, do this or do that, right? It's super clear. Hashem said to Moshe, do this. Then all of a sudden you get to other Nevi'im and they start to give these mashalim and these parables and they at least explain their parables. But then you get to Chagai, Zachari, and Malachi, which are the last prophets, and the faucet is sort of starting to turn off and it's those last few drops, you know, before, uh, before it stops, you know, before it stops uh, putting out the prophecy altogether. And all of a sudden, the prophecies are wild prophecies. Now, somebody who's a novice might look at those prophecies and say, wow, these are like very high prophecies because they're so esoteric. But the truth is that Ibn Ezra says that the reason that they're so esoteric is because Zechariah himself didn't understand the prophecies. Zechariah was getting these prophetic, uh, you know, stories or images, and he didn't know how to interpret them entirely. So says Ibn Ezra, good luck to me trying to write this commentary, because if Zechariah didn't know what he was talking about, then how can I possibly have any clue what he's talking about? But then he says, but I do have an advantage. And my advantage is that having experienced about 2,000 years of history, since the, or almost 3,000 years of history since Zechariah, said these nevuos, I stand a better chance of knowing what he's talking about because I can look back at history and say, oh, this corresponds to that. And there's various things that I, I, I can maybe link what Zachariah was saying that maybe he himself didn't understand. But now that these events have, some of these events have happened, it's possible that I can then go back and try to interpret what he was trying to say. So there's a very famous nevuah of Zachariah. Uh, it's actually a very famous nevuah of, uh, of, uh, of another religion that took lots of ideas from Judaism. Um, they fancied for themselves an Old Testament um, and a New Testament. So, uh, but th there's a very famous uh, passage in Zechariah, which is oft quoted, which uh, I believe they refer to it as the the, the prophecy of the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what they that's what they call it. And this is a this is a, from the uh, from the Navi of Zechariah. It's from the sixth parak of Zechariah. And this is what happens in source number five. And I returned my eyes and I, I raised them up. And I saw I saw four chariots, four horse-drawn chariots that were coming between these two very large mountains. And these mountains, these four chariots that are coming through the heart, these mountains, these mountains are these mountains were mountains that were made out of copper or otherwise were rich in copper. And the Malbim explains what is the secret of these Hare Nechoshes in source number six. Ki Malchus Bechol Shahaisa Malchus Hazav Malchus Bavel, excuse me, Malchus Bavel was the Malchus of gold. Malchus, let's fix that, was the Malchus of gold. Malchus Madai Shahaisa Shal Kesef, the Malchus of the medians, of the Persian medians were Kesef, and Kvar Echlifum in Olam, Bavel, and Madai have already gone from the world by the time that Zechariah is speaking. Zechariah is already speaking after, at the end of the second temple period, or towards the end of the second base of Mikdash, and the Hanukkah story has already happened. And you know who is in control throughout the time of the exile of Yavan? Obviously, it's the Syrian Greeks. It's the Greeks. So we see again a third place in Tanakh where these mountains of copper which are evocative of the Persian, of the, uh, excuse me, of the Greek exile, 
are specifically a reference to copper mountains because Yavon is associated with copper. I didn't put the whole thing in here because it's a little bit lengthy, but there is a source in the Tanhuma, in the Medrash Tanhuma, which is a collection of Midrash written by Rabbi Tanhuma or edited by Rabbi Tanhuma. And in Parshish Truma, he points out that there are three primary materials that are found in the Beis HaMikdash. Those three primary materials are Zahav, Kesef, and Nechoshes. And those are in order to combat Bavel, Paras, and Madai, and Yavan. So you see it again that in the Beis HaMikdash, these three materials correspond to these three core exiles that uh, that we somehow tame through their uh, through their being part of the Beis HaMikdash. And of course, the Beis HaMikdash is a place for all nations. It's a place for all people to come. And so we want there to be representative materials of each of these different nations. And it's a way of both inviting and also uh, showing that there's a subservience that needs to be to God of all these different nations. Okay, let's just go for one more source about Nechoshes before we jump into another area, before we run out of time. This one is pretty esoteric, I must admit. And funny enough, the most esoteric source on this source sheet is probably what we're about to read. And it's from a Halacha Sefer. It's from the Sefer Eliyahu Rabba. Eliyahu Rabba is a Sefer of Halacha that, uh, that is written on the Levush, which is a, a commentary that goes through some of the laws of the Shulchan Orech, of the, of the, of the classic book of Jewish law. And he quotes the following thing. The reason why I'm quoting it from here instead of quoting what he quotes from is because I could not find it in the source that he claims it's in. Um, and it's a rather esoteric idea. He says, take a look. He says in source number seven, Kasuv HaGos Maimoni, that's the name of the Sefer. Nechoshet, the word Nechoshet, which means copper, like we said before, Notricon is an acronym like scuba, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. It's an acronym for the words, Nechoshet stands for Nun, Ner, Ches, Chanukah, Shin, Shamash, Taf, Tadlik. Nechoshes stands for, and this is quite a peculiar puzzle piece, right? Indeed, that Nechoshes, copper, stands for Ner Chanukah Shamish Tadlik. You should light the Chanukah candles not from one candle to another, but you should have some sort of uh, secondary device that you'll use to light all the Chanukah candles. So hopefully we'll come back to all this soon. But here you see that there is a connection between copper and Chanukah through the agency of the people of Greek of Greece who are associated because of their national uh, metal with copper. Everybody good so far? I'll pause for questions if anyone has any questions. Feel free to chime in. A shy bunch. Okay, so we'll, we'll go further. Um, well, if we're thinking about copper, we need to go uh, looking for other places where we might be able to find an A equals B. So we already know that Yavan somehow is related to the idea of uh, of copper, but maybe there's other things that also relate to copper. And uh, my mind immediately jumped to the story from Chumash that talks about when the Jewish people in the Midbar were bitten by snakes, and Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu that the way that they could be healed from this snake bite is through this very peculiar thing. He says, I want you to make, make a uh, make a, a statue of a saraf, meaning a, a poisonous snake, and put it on a pole. Anybody who looks at this staff with the snake on it, uh, will, will who looks at it will be healed and they'll live. Right? And this is until this very day. If you see uh, outside of a medical facility, 
or outside of a pharmacy, you'll sometimes see this snake on a pole. That comes from the Torah, the idea of this snake of Moses, which is supposed to heal the people from their poisonous snake bite. So Hashem just tells him to put a saraf on a pole, but doesn't tell him what to make it out of. And yet the Torah tells us in the very next Pasuk, Vayas Moshe Nachash Nachoshes. Moshe made a copper snake. That was the material he chose to use. I guess the Ramban says the reason he used a copper snake is because, you know, that's what a snake sort of looks like. It's a good color. Silver, the snakes aren't really silver. They're sort of like a coppery kind of color. And so copper was like the, was a good color to use for a snake because that sort of looks like a snake, says the Ramban. Rashi says that he made it out of Nechoshes. Hashem didn't tell him to make it in Nechoshes. This animal is called a nachash. I'm going to like make this play on words that the nachash is somehow from a language of nachoshes and lashon nofel al lashon. This is a instance of wordplay. Moshe Rabbeinu is making wordplay. Hashem said, make a snake and put it on a pole. And Moshe is like, oh, I know what I'll make the snake out of. I'll make it out of nachoshes because the word nachash sounds awfully a lot like the word nachoshes. Uh, well, that's a very peculiar thing to say indeed. But at least it brings us to another idea that links us to the idea of Nechoshes. Rashi wants us to believe that somehow Moshe Rabbeinu knew to make the snake out of Nechoshes because there's something intrinsic, there's some intrinsic link between the concept of the Nechosh and Nechoshes. Well, maybe this will help us with our puzzle. We'll have to hold on to it again. Sometimes words of Torah are poor in their place, but become wealthy elsewhere. So let's see what happens when we, uh, when we put it together with another idea. So... Uh, of course, the Nachash, I need one or two more uh, little jumps here, and then we'll start to put things together in a way that I hope, hope will, will make you smile. Um, the Nachash, Hanachoshes, of course, brings us to this, to this uh, most famous creature of the Torah, the Nachash, who, of course, is famous from the story of the Garden of Eden. And the Nachash's first, the Nachash's first encounter with humanity, he says something which may tip us off into... Uh, some level of understanding of the, the notion of copper and the notion of thighs and the no, notion of grease and the notion of the snake. And that is the following. In source number 10, the Nachash says, don't eat from the tree, uh, you should eat from the tree of the Eitzas, don't listen to God. Don't listen to God. You can eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because I'm telling you on the day that you do that, you actually will become like God yourself. And you'll be able to create worlds of your own. In other words, if I had to summarize what the slander of the Nachash is, I would say that the Nachash's primary slander is that the Nachash wants to claim that it's better to be independent than to be dependent. Don't be dependent on God. God is the one who wants you to be dependent on him. He created a world with all these rules. But live in your own world where you don't have to be dependent on anyone. If you eat from this tree, you'll be able to create your own world and you'll be able to enjoy your own independence and that way you don't have to suffer God's rules and you don't have to say thank you or please, right? You'll just be on your own, Lord of the flies. You'll be able to, you know, rule the, rule the, the island by yourself. And, and that's, that's so much better than being stuck under the rulership of God who's going to have all these rules. You're going to always have to say thank you and please and all these, all these different things. Now, strangely enough, this idea that the Nachash uh, is an ingrate, is ungrateful and wants this sense of independence wants this sense of being able to do things for himself and not having to say thank you or to depend on anybody else, create your own world instead of depending on someone else's world, is solidified in a Gemara in Bavakama 
in source number 11. The Gemara says something very peculiar, and now things will start to shape up a little. It says, Shidro shel adam shiva shanim, nachash. After seven years, in seven-year intervals, or possibly according to one Gerson the Gemara, after 70 years, a person's spine will become snake-like. Right? Their spine will become uh, crooked. Vahani mili, and that will only happen to a person that will specifically happen to a person if they do not bow during modim. Anybody who refuses to bow down during modim to lower their spine, well, mida connected mida because you weren't willing to bend your spine, your spine is going to bend this way because you weren't willing to bend this way and to show something. Now, what's the idea of modim? This fits very nicely with that. We can understand why your spine will turn into a snake because if the snake is the one who from the very beginning of time did not want Adam and Chava, to be modet Hashem and to be able to say, thank you for giving me this garden. Thank you for giving me all this, all these, uh, all these trees. And I can have all of them that I want, but I just have this one little caveat that I can't eat this one tree. And I have to acknowledge and to admit that really this all comes from you, Hashem. Well, the snake could not do such a thing. And so therefore it makes a lot of sense that a person who refuses to bow during modim shares this character with the snake and the punishment, mida kenegen mida, is that their spine starts to become a little swervy. Now, this is amazing. Because the Svas MS pulls an amazing move that takes a bunch of different pieces and puts them together in a way which is quite remarkable indeed. In source number 12, the Svas MS writes, in the, name of his fa- in the name of his grandfather, we know that the Malchus of Yavan, the Greek uh, exile, Nemar it says about the Greek exile that they are made out of thighs of copper. Their thighs are made of copper. If your thighs and your uh, hips, right? It's, it, it's, it's the chest and the arms and then the thighs and the hips. If you're going all the way down, down towards the knees and past the knees, it's just the lower um, calf and the lower feet that are the final exile. So basically the Greek exile corresponds to copper thighs that start from the place of the hip, go all the way down the thigh, all the way down to the knee, to the place where the knee joins with the kneecap. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had thighs and hips and knees that were made out of metal, it would be very, very difficult to bow, I would think. And, and it's, not, it's not my thinking, it's the Svas Emes's thinking. The Svas Emes says that it's specific that the Babylonian exile represents the head and the Horus and Madai represents the hands. And Yavan specifically represents the inability to bow, trouble with bowing. And that is why they are related to the concept of nechoshes as well, which comes from the word of nachash, because the nachash is also incapable of bowing before the divine will. And therefore, we find that, you know what the celebration of Hanukkah is really all about? The celebration of Hanukkah is a time, lahodos ulahalel. Hodot is from a lashon of modim. It means to bow and to acknowledge before God, to acknowledge one's dependency, to acknowledge the, the miraculous nature of the salvation of the Jewish people at times of war as we're seeing right now, to just draw this into current events here for a moment, right? The, the, the remarkable nature of Hashem's hand in nature, how Hashem uh, takes care of the Jewish people and our absolute necessity, and, and not, not, not just the Jewish people writ large, but the tzaddikim who are, who, are, who are managing the Jewish people and the miracles that Hashem allows specifically at the hands of the tzaddikim to be able to bring salvation to the Jewish people. This is something that, Really, we have to be modet Hashem. We have to acknowledge Hashem when these miraculous things happen. And, and, and the, for that reason, um, Hanukkah is really all about lahodos u 
the opposite of a person who's unwilling to, to bow, the opposite of a person who's unwilling to be machria at modim, the opposite of the snake who is unwilling to show that there's actually something quite beautiful and magnificent about being dependent on somebody else. And this is an amazing thing. You know, um, the word hoda'a, I'll, uh, I'll not read it inside for now in the interest of time, but in source number, uh, if in case anybody wants the sources afterwards, in source number, I think it should be in here. Yeah, in source number 28, um, which I'm not going to read inside right now, Rav Hutner, Rav Yitzchak Hutner, who was one of the great Rosh Yeshiva, lived in Brooklyn, um, who was a very clever thinker, especially when it came to language. He says an interesting thing. He said, you know, the Hebrew word, hoda, which means to thank, actually has two meanings. In monetary law, lahodot means to admit something, right? Like if somebody claims that you owe them money and you're moda, you, you would acknowledge or admit that that person is saying the truth and that you really do owe them that money, that's called hoda'as baldin. That's called the acknowledgement or the admittance of the person who's being claimed, of the claimant, of the person who's being claimed against, of the defendant. And, um, and Rav Hutner said that it's not a mistake that the word hoda means both to admit and to thank. And this is an amazing teaching because every time a person says thank you to another person, what they're actually saying is, I admit that I could not have done this without you. And that's a hard thing for people to do, to admit something of the nature that I could not have possibly done this without you. And so therefore I say thank you to you because I'm acknowledging and admitting that I am dependent on you and that I'm not embarrassed or ingrateful and, uh, and I'm willing to, to share that with you. It's for that specific reason that the holiday of Hanukkah is all about hoda'a. Hoda'a means admission and acknowledgement. And at the same time, it also means thanks. And, uh, and, and the two of those come, to, come together in a beautiful way when we think about the word dependency. Now, I just want to go one step deeper into explaining the idea of thighs. Okay, they're copper thighs. Now, I already mentioned before that the hips and the thighs and the knees, if they are made of metal, are very difficult to utilize in the, in the act of bowing. But I actually want to take it one step further and show that thighs actually are very much related to the notion of dependency or independence. And there's an amazing uh, comment from Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch. I will take the liberty not to read this one inside either. And so since I'm not reading inside, I will stop share screen. Um, this is where Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch says. It's a pretty remarkable idea. It's a little bit of a delicate idea because of the traditional way that this idea is, uh, is usually understood. There's a Pasuk uh, two times in the Torah. One of them is found by the Eved of Avraham, who is going to find a suitable mate for his son Isaac, for Yitzchak. And the other time is when Yaakov Avinu, when Jacob is going to uh, graduate from this world, and he asks his son Yosef to promise that he'll bury him in the land of Israel. And in both cases, even though the Eved of Avraham and Yosef promise Avraham and, and, and Yaakov, respectively, that they are going to fulfill the request, each of the uh, requestees, each of the people who are making the request, um, ask the, the, the requesters ask the requestees to take an oath, and the language that's used in the pasuk is simna yadcha tachas yerechi, very peculiar words, which means place your hand underneath my thigh. And Rashi explains that what it means is that since the thigh is proximate the place where Avram Avinu received the mitzvah of bris milah, and since there was no Torah scrolls or tefillin or mezuzot hanging on the doorposts at the time, because this was before the giving of the Torah. Therefore, the traditional way of taking an oath 
was to put your hand near something holy. And so you would put your hand on the person's thigh, which is proximate the place of the makomila, in order to effectuate the, uh, the oath. That's Rashi's interpretation. Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch has an absolutely astounding explanation for this uh, sentence, which appears twice in the Torah. He says, what's the common denominator between these two sentences? What is it that's going on in these two sentences? What's happening is that in both cases, there is somebody who's about to die and they are appointing a plenipotentiary. They're appointing a, a shliach who is going to an agent who is going to represent them in, uh, in some transaction, in some, in some action that they're not capable of doing themselves. So says Rosh Hashim Hirsch, what is the thigh? Now, I don't know if anyone's here uh, visited the land of Israel uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so since the light rail started uh, operating. But uh, if you've ever been on the light rail or even more than 10 years ago, if you've ever been on a city bus or if you've ever been on a city bus in America for that matter, you know that before the bus driver uh, closes the door and starts pulling out, you, if you know it's good for you, you'd best get your, the backside of your thigh up against a chair or a, or a window or a, a something. Otherwise, you're going to go flying, right? And everybody who is listening to this year right now in a sitting position understands that the two thighs, which are the biggest muscle that hold up the entire body, they're like the pillars that hold up the entire structure of the human being. The two thighs represent self-sufficiency. It represents my ability to hold myself up and not fall down, right? That's why if you have your hand on like one of those like pull bars, like on the thing, you're still going to be jostling around. But as soon as you get your thigh up against a seat or up against a window, all of a sudden you're much more stable. There's much more stability. Thighs rep represent stability and not only stability, but your thigh represents your own self-efficacy, your own ability to do something without help from somebody else. A yad in Jewish law and also in, uh, in many places is, right, we say that uh, the shliach is kiyad hashaleach. The shliach is like the hand, it's like the, like the hand, you know, this is, I'm going I'm to say something odd right now, but I can't help but share this. And I've shared this with some of you before, I believe. You know, I have a lot of trouble watching people eat popcorn. I'll tell you why. Because, you know, when I was a kid, and they still have these nowadays, they just don't really play games anymore like this. But, you know, they have like these things in like an arcade or like in a pizza shop where you put in 25 cents or 50 cents now probably. And like you have this little joystick and you like move this claw and it's like, you know, and then like you press, it goes like over the thing and then you press the button and it goes down and like picks up a teddy bear and then it drops, you know, the, the, the toy into, you know, or you, or not, or they like rig it. So you'll never win. And you just keep throwing money away, you know? So, um, so when I watch people eat popcorn, it, it's very much like that. You like see this like claw device. It's like going into the popcorn bowl and like, you know, into the mouth and like back to the popcorn bowl. And it's like this uh, very funny, like all of a sudden the hand just becomes this externalized force of, of trying to take my will and action and, and make it actionable, right? The hand is this like agent of my will, which is the reason why Netil Asyadayim is specifically by the hands, because it's my agent of my will to the outside, outside world. Now let's run that through the Psukim again. Avraham asks his Eved and ya Yaakov demands of his son Yosef, Simna Yadcha Tachas Yerechi. Let's add one last little bit here. And then we only have like six minutes left. So we're going to have to hightail it to the end of the year. But with, with about six minutes left, Simna Yadcha Tachas Yerechi means an amazing thing. T the word Tachas doesn't only mean under geographically, but it also means like instead of. 
Like as in the verse, ayin tachat ayin, an eye for an eye instead of an eye. Right? If you knock out someone's eye, ayin tachat ayin means an eye for an eye. Simna yad chatachas yerichi might mean, says Rishim Shafal Hirsch, let your hand, Yosef or Eved Avraham, be tachat yerichi, be instead of my yerech. Because I'm no longer able to be self-sufficient. I'm going to die. I can't see that my son is going to get married. I can't clearly bury myself in Israel. And so let your hand, your agency, be instead of my thigh, which is incapable of acting in a way of self-sufficiency, because I recognize that I'm dependent on you. And that dependency on you is a beautiful thing, and I'm okay with that. And so Simna Yad Chatach represents an act of supreme dependence and showing that the thigh, which is this thing, which is supposed to be this center of, of, of uh, independence, really sometimes uh, ultimately fails. Now, this is an amazing thing. We'll, we'll, we'll try to speed along here now. What is the, you know, if I, if I were to play psychologist for Yavon, what eats at Yavon's ego more than anything else? And what I would say is that, and the truth is, I'm not just picking on like the Greeks. I have nothing against the Greeks. You know, there's a, these things, especially if you start to learn Torah in a way of, of depth, so, um, or, or if you continue to learn it in depth, I don't know why I, would, why I would assume that you haven't already started learning in depth. But if you, if, you, if you learn Torah in a way of depth, then what happens is that you realize that there is a Greece and a, and a Bavel and an Edom and an Ishmael and an Avram and an Yitzchak and a Bilam and an Esav and a, and a, and a, and a, and a Nebuchadnezzar and a Daniel. All these people live inside of us on a certain level. These are archetypes of, this, of the personalities. And we have little aspects of these things running around inside of our psyche. And it's our job to attempt to manage them and to realize how we can deal with them. And so what I would suggest is that the primary psychological analysis that we could say about Yavon, about that Yavon inside of us and, and the people of Yavon, is that there's a part of us that is that doesn't feel very good about being dependent on other people. And part of that's very healthy. We don't want to be dependent on other people for everything. But part of that is sort of toxic. And the reason why they're so, um, so uh, what's what I'm looking for? They're so uh, insecure about this dependency is because from the very beginning of time, uh, in source number 18, Noah says to one of his sons, Yefet, uh, who, who, who is the progenitor of Yavan, Yaft Elokim Yefet which basically means Yavan, Yefet, you are really beautiful, but only when you dwell in the tents of shame. Meaning to say, there's something very beautiful about you, Yavan, but you need to be uh, somehow curbed and somehow incorporated into the spiritual technology of the Semites, of the Semitic traditions. And in fact, we find in the Gemara that the Gemara says, you're only allowed to write a Sefer Torah in Hebrew, or you could write it in Greek. Because the Greek, it's an amazing Gemara. The Gemara says you can write the Sefer Torah in Greek. It's a kosher Sefer Torah. It's written in Hebrew letters, but in the Greek language. And the reason that you're allowed to do that, they quote this Pasuk, Yaft Elokim There's something beautiful about the language of Yefet, which is able to interpret and to bring the Torah alive in a way that, you know, sometimes the Hebrew itself is too lofty for us and we need some sort of interpretation. But Yefet, you only have value if you are subservient to something else. It's like the idea that we find that the Greeks, who were these great philosophers and great scientists, we say to them, philosophy and science is amazing. Philosophy and science is super important. But if philosophy and science are not subservient to the morality of the Torah's tradition, then it's only second class. And the Yavanim aren't really so happy with that. 
that doesn't make them particularly happy to hear that you're playing second fiddle to the Jewish people. Now, I have one last thing, and we'll close up with this. In the piyutim, in the, in the, in the uh, song that we sing after we light the menorah, stop, share for a second. In the song that we sing after the lighting of the menorah on, uh, on Hanukkah, we refer to the fact that the Yavanim uh, came and entered into, uh, into war with the Jewish people. And then it says, Upartsu Chomos Migdalai. They came and they breached our walls. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, uh, none of my teachers ever told me anything about breaching the walls. I know about surrounding the walls in other exiles. I know about other, you know, other sieges and things like that. What is this breaching of the walls, which is referenced in the Partsu Chomos Migdalai? They breached our walls. Yevanim Nikpatsu Alai, Upartsu Chomos Migdalai. What is that a reference to? So the truth is, it's actually an explicit Mishnah. Okay, the Mishnah says that in the times of the Syrian Greeks, they came to the temple, and in the Beis HaMikdash, there was a little partition. The partition was about 10 Tfachim tall, which is a good number for Hanukkah, right? It's 10 Tfachim tall, and it was, you, 10 Tfachim is not very tall. It goes like wait, about waist level, okay? It goes about waist level, which is also great for, for our uh, investigation here. And, um, and, um, on, on this thing was called the Sorig. And on the Sorig, which is this little partition that you could totally see over, um, and you could probably even step over if you wanted to, uh, it said, Ad Khan, only until this point are non-Jews allowed to enter. Whoa. So all of a sudden, the Yavanim come into the base of Mikdash, and their whole thing is about, you know, universality, and, and you know, we're humanists. <clears throat> and there's nothing special about the Jewish people and, and any, any place which is available for anybody is available for everybody. So they came in, says the Mishnah, and they made 13 breaches. They made 13 holes in the Sorig to allow entry into anybody. One for each of the 12 Shvatim and a 13th one for the rest of the world. In other words, you know, this is not a special place just for you. This is a place, anybody can go into this place. And the truth is that we sort of believe that also. It's a base tefillah kola amim. But just like there are places where Kohanim are allowed to go, and there's places where the Kohen Gadol is allowed to go, there are places where only Jews are allowed to go. Now, this is the amazing, I'd say this is the, 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 the linchpin of the whole thing that puts everything together. And then we'll wrap it all up in a nice bow. The Mishnah continues and says that when the Chashmonim came and they defeated the Greeks, and they came into the temple and they saw these breaches in the walls, and they were devastated by the breaches. The Mishnah says they patched up all the, bre the breaches, and then look what they did. I got to show you inside. It's just too good. Look what they did. They, they patched up each of the breaches in the wall. And then says the Mishnah. Bum, ba -da -bum, bum, bum. Here we go. There's this wall called the Sorig. It's 10 Tfachim tall. The Yavan kings made 13 breaches. The Chashmonaim came and they re-patched uh, them up. And they made a decree that anybody who passes by these breaches, Jew or non-Jew, has to fall on their face and do a hashtachavayos, which means bow, right? Because what were the Jewish people trying to teach the Yavanim? They were trying to teach the Yavanim, friends, you might think that being dependent on something else for holiness is a negative thing, but I want you to know and I want you to realize that you don't play second fiddle to the Jewish people. It's not like the Jewish people are the greatest and you're second to us. But all of us play second fiddle to Hashem. 
and that there's something beautiful about the human condition that we are able to acknowledge and we could we could we could admit and thank Hashem that we are dependent on Him. And it's something which we don't have to be ashamed of, and it's not something that we have to be afraid of acknowledging. And so the Yavanim think this gate is a place that's trying to keep us out and let the Jewish people in because the Jewish people think they're greater than us. By bowing by this gate, the Jewish people fall on the floor and say, This is not about us. This is about this is about Hashem's house. This is not about us in particular. And we are here, just like you are here, to acknowledge our dependency on Hashem. Now, if we go back, we can put together a lot of these ideas. The copper thighs, I think we've already done pretty, pretty well with. The idea that Yavon relates to the idea of lahodos lahalel in the opposite and is unwilling to bow. And therefore, the specific tikkun for them is that we make these uh, 13 places of bowing. That there's a sense of wanting to be, that even Yavon themselves want to be independent of the Jewish people, that they want their thought processes to not be dependent on Jewish wisdom, to be able to put everything together in their own way. But, um, and, and this is the idea of thighs. Thighs mean my own dependency on myself, and, uh, and the copper thighs mean my, my inability to acknowledge that maybe I, I could be dependent on somebody else. Let's go back to that esoteric, and we'll end with this, that esoteric uh, statement that we said before, that nechoshes is roshe tevos, ner Hanukkah shamish tadlik. Now, this is an amazing thing. Why is Nechoshet, copper, Roshi Tevos, Neros Chanukah, Shamash Tadlik? So this is unbelievable. It's because what do we say? We know, Hanero Talalu Kodashem, Ve'en Lanu Rishus Lishtamesh Bahem. The Nerot of Chanukah are so holy, we're not allowed to get any benefit from them. And the only way that we're allowed to get benefit from those Nerot Chanukah, the only way that the world can truly benefit from the Jewish people and from things that are holy is if there is a Shamash, What's the shamash? The shamash is this non-holy candle, which is basically playing second fiddle to the rest of the candles of the menorah. But guess what? You can't even light the menorah without the shamash. The shamash is what allows us to benefit from the, from the candles. In other words, you would think that the Jewish people think that they're better than the Yavanim. We acknowledge and we understand, we're willing to admit to you, just like we ask you to admit to us, that we can't possibly serve God without you because the Torah is way too high. It's way too lofty. If we didn't study science and philosophy and all of the other wisdoms of the world, it would be impossible, like the Vilna Gon said, that the seven branches of the menorah themselves represent the seven different branches of wisdom, music and art and science and, and philosophy. All these different branches of wisdom are all represented by the, by the menorah. But in order for the menorah to be proper, properly lit, for the menorah, which also represents Torah and Torah Shabal Peh, to be properly lit in a way where we're allowed to benefit from it, we need a shamash. We need a candle which is not sacred which does not play the role of being the Kodeshem in order to allow us to benefit from all of the candles. And so Nechoshes, which is the national identity of Yavon, when we finally learn to incorporate that into a proper psychological uh, rubric, and we're not embarrassed of the idea of being dependent, then we realize that in fact, Yavon's primary job is to teach us the importance of interdependency, of our ability to be dependent on one another and to recognize that just like we can't do possible, we can't, understand anything or do anything without Hashem. Also, on a certain level, Hashem, once he created the world in the way that he did, he can't do anything without us. Hashem is waiting for us to take those final steps in order to fix the world. Hashem created man and woman. He created humanity and then said, you guys have to finish the job. I started the job, but on the seventh day, I rest. And part of the resting is to say that you guys have to finish the job. So this is uh, my presentation for this evening. I will end. Anybody who wants to sign off can, can, can sign off. I had a habit a number of years ago when I first put together some of these thoughts of ending my Torah classes or just for myself. I didn't always share them, but uh, trying to take 
an entire hour-long hour lecture and then to summarize it in a, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 line poem. And then I, just because I'm, you know, an interesting fellow, I also uh, footnoted the poem so that you could see like what the allusions were in the poem. So if anybody wants any of the source sheets or just the poem, I'm happy to share it with you. If you're on a computer and you want to do a screenshot of it, I will put it up right now and I'll read the poem for you. And then I wish everybody a wonderful evening. It's uh, 10 o'clock here in the land of Israel. So I'm going to get ready to, uh, you know, start closing in for the night. And this is it. The poem is called The Splendor of Our Dependency. The Splendor of Our Dependency. In Hebrew, the word splendor is hod, right? Which is from the word hoda'ah. Right? There's something splendorous about, about being modeh, about, uh, about, um, about being able to acknowledge and think. I'm going to move this to the other side because I can't really see the whole... Okay. Um, so it goes like this. There's some good... For the, po for the poetry buffs in the crowd, there's some good alliteration in the beginning. You know, there's a lot of S's for the snake. Oh, thankless, stubborn spine, you Grecian copper snake. Best bow your haughty head before your backbone breaks. Oh, burnished thighs... You overtrust, now bend your knees or else you'll rust. True, beauty may endorse your name, but only in the tents of shame. And as for us, you'll find us here amidst the eight-pronged chandelier, conceding thanks and mending walls, illuminating courtyard halls with wax and oil, wick and flame, my soul reveal, your house reclaim. Ten handbreaths lit, each breath we sit in awe of the splendor of our dependency. Thank you, everybody, for joining me this evening. I hope that we'll have a chance to study Torah again. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I hope we'll get to study in person because when it's in person, it's a little bit more interactive and we can speak to one another. But I hope in the meantime, you learn something here and uh, it helps you to serve Hashem a little bit better here. And not just to serve Hashem, but also to, uh, you know, the, the greatest thanks that I could have after a year like this is that after we all hang up, we all uh, take upon ourselves to not only say thank you to Hashem before we go to sleep tonight, but to call another human being who you feel dependent on and to uh, to say thank you. And I, I couldn't I couldn't do it without you. And that's an important thing, important thing to acknowledge uh, people in our lives that we we can't do it without. And there are plenty of those people. We just don't always take the time to do that. So um, we should all we should all try to do that. We should be Zoha to acknowledge our dependency and to revel in the splendor of our dependency. I wish everybody a wonderful night and a happy Hanukkah. Thank you very much.